Welcome to the BT Focus podcast dedicated to the behavior technician experience and the delivery of ABA services. Welcome back to the BT Focus podcast as we conclude part three and four of the DTT Pro Tip series. As we give you additional tips and strategies to elevate your practice as a behavior technician. So, um, very good. So, so now we have cleared the field of distractions. We have established through a number of means an effective reinforcer. We've established a ready behavior. Now we're ready to start <laughs> the act of, of presenting DTT. So we'll say here, you know, we're going to be presenting the materials specified in the program, and then we're providing the instruction. And the in, in an instructional format, we would say the SD. We can save that little technical definition for just a moment. Um, but this is one of the points that I'm passionate about is we're providing instructions that are clear and concise, but I want to stress a point that it should be done in a natural tone. And why do I even have to say that? Right. Um, I think sometimes very well-intentioned new behavior technicians are, are providing the instructions. You need to present that SD, that instruction in a clear and concise way. And I think some of the times how that plays itself out is that it almost becomes robotic and do this, follow me, match, right? I think what's important to know is that our learners, especially those with an emerging language, they learn by imitation, right? So it's important to still speak with that normal, natural inflection and tone because over time, that's the hope is that those are the same sort of like vocal intonations that our client will develop with typical language. So that being said, still provide clear and concise instructions. However, this is where the importance of differential reinforcement comes into play, right? Because you should certainly be varying your tone between the delivery of an instruction, do this, match, right? Versus reinforcement, great matching, Ian, that was awesome, way to go. So, so your voice is an instrument, if you will, that you can use and dial up and dial down depending on what the situation is. But I always tell people, just use your natural tone, natural inflection, and then when they respond correctly, depending on what the schedule of reinforcement is, let all of that enthusiasm out, right? That's one of the things that I'm really passionate about because I always think about what is it like to be a learner in this situation? I certainly wouldn't want to be in instructional format where it's kind of dull and monotone and dry. I, I want it to be fluent and I want it to be crisp and clear. But I also think that using our normal tone and intonation is important, especially for learners with emerging language. Yep. And here, here, here's a fun route I'm going to take this with. Brian, do you remember the story of Clever Hans? Mm, I do not. So Clever Hans was the horse back in the early 20th century who could supposedly solve very complex math equations. Okay. And so <laughs> Clever Hans would tap his hoof a number of times. So for example, if you give him a math equation, he would tap his, number, his hoof the number of times uh, the number was supposed to be. And um, what they figured out was Hans was actually cueing to the verbal behavior of the listener. Uh, mm. and, and here's why I bring this up. So we've all played the game like, you know, where you hide something, you're getting warmer, you're getting colder, right? Well, in that game, we oftentimes don't change our verbiage when someone's getting closer to something, right? You might say you're getting warmer, but what do we change? I'm like, you're yeah. getting warmer. 
you're getting warmer. Yeah. You're getting yeah. warmer. Yeah. So I'm not changing anything I'm saying, but how I say it, the volume, yes. the pitch, the the magnitude is what tells you that you're getting closer. And that's how Hans learned as well. He learned that when their verbal behavior, when, when their mm. voice was changing, that he was getting closer to the answer. And then eventually when they got to the right one, he knew to, to stop yeah. uh, stomping. So, so same thing here. So again, going back to eliminating distractions, we don't want the tone of our voice to be a reason a child learns to respond or to not respond to a discriminative stimulus. Yeah. Well said. Great consideration. And fun fact. Clever Hans. Clever Hans. Shout out Clever. <laughs> Clever Hans. That's good. I'll never forget that now. That's awesome. All right. Here's one more. And, and we're going like really inside baseball here, but this is what it's all about. So another consideration, child's name is not included in the, the instruction or the SD in the situation. So I remember this being a light bulb moment for me early in my career. And this kind of harkens back to the importance of asking questions during supervision and always trying to find the why behind it. I can remember early in my career as a behavior technician, seeing on maybe it was like a performance evaluation sheet or something like that, not using the child's name in the SD. And I never asked why. I, you know, I just thought, oh, this is just how we did things here. It's kind of odd, right? Don't we use people's names to gain their attention in real life? Hey, Ian, what's this? Ian, what's that? But I didn't stop to think about it at first. Although as time went on, I, I finally asked my supervisor. I said, you know, can I ask why? This seems somewhat arbitrary. Why can't we use a child's name in the instruction? And my supervisor provided a really beautiful response that was behaviorally sound that just made it click for me. So Ian, I want you to pretend to be my supervisor. Ian, what's the big deal about not using a child's name in an instruction during DTT? I'm going to be honest with you, Brian. I I personally have uh, an internal conflict with this one because I do think okay. there are times where it's appropriate and not. Um, ultimately, you know, speaking to a learner who maybe is progressing towards being able to be uh, in a group setting, if you will, they do need to learn to respond when their name is called and discriminate that they should respond when they hear their name versus not. But a lot of learners don't have the ability to respond to their name. And when we talk about tasks and the difficulty of task demands, within a task demand is what we call a conditional discrimination, which essentially means that when we talk to a child, so for example, if I say point to the dog, they're doing listener responding, well, there's two different things that they hear in that sentence that they have to attend to. Point to, dog. When you add in that name of, hey, Ian, point to the dog, although in initial teaching, it really doesn't change much, um, but it does add what we call an extra conditional discrimination. So that's why in later learning, we then throw in, start saying other kids' names when we're in group settings because they have to learn that, hey, yeah, I know that I'm supposed to point to a dog, but am I supposed to or not because of my name being called? Now, where your supervisor probably went with this was often, and maybe not, but oftentimes we also have children who responding to name, not necessarily based on uh, a skill deficit, but also based on compliance, that when then they don't respond, they're just further than learning to not respond to their name. And we can, mm. we can you know, inadvertently shape up the allowance of not responding to one's name. Um, those are a couple of the reasons that I would bring up, but. Yeah. 
all, all great considerations. And I, I think an additional one that my supervisor provided at the time, and it goes back to the point of how we're pairing that name, right? So if we are, if you look at a given session, let's say you're in a four-hour session and you are presenting a hundred trials to this learner, right? And hypothetically, if before the presentation of every single trial, you use that learner's name immediately followed by an instruction, what might that elicit over time every time the learner hears their name? Work's coming, right? So, and let's say that you're working with a learner who initially, let's say they have, they have maybe not the best learning history with instructional demands, right? Like maybe they've been in an academic setting where that's been really challenging. And we could say that there's even a history of escape maintained behavior when it comes to that attention, right? So in that instructional setting, when the, the first goal that we've been taking a lot of time to describe is to establish that joint attention, and now we're using the child's name, and that is basically a discriminative stimuli to <laughs> escape potentially, or a signal that work is impending or it was it was looming right that could have some adverse consequences my supervisor made this great point like a person's name that's going to be one of the most important words in their language right so we should be very mindful to consistently and routinely use their name when paired with reinforcement great job ian man you're doing an awesome job today ian i love how you're working way to go However, we should be mindful about trying to minimize the amount of time that's used directly following instructions for, for most learners and especially for early learners, right? You brought up some great points of it is important as they advance and especially in our group setting to be able to discriminate their name, right? Getting called on by the teacher. Yes, Ian, thanks for raising your hand. What's the answer to this question, right? Um, but especially in those kind of like foundational early learners type skills, it's something to be mindful of. Now, are you going to have moments where it slips out and you use the learner's name in, in the delivery and instruction? Most certainly, I would say. <laughs> We've been in the field for a number of years and it still happens to me on occasion, right? But it's something that I'm mindful of. And there's a number of different ways, and we've described several of how are you able to get a learner's attention without using their name? And, and I would say through some of the strategies we just described. So um, that's an important why behind it. Um, there's never going to be a point in behavior analysis where something is just arbitrary or just because this is the way we've done things. There's 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 a reason or rationale behind it. All right, Ian. So now that we've done all of this work to set the table, if you will, leading up to the presentation of an instruction, now let's talk about here's some considerations for when a child responds correctly. Number one, and again, this is going to be dependent on the learner, depending on your behavior plan, but here are some thoughts. Number one, reinforcement is delivered for a correct response whether that be verbal praise or a tangible item. Again, this could vary depending on what we could say the schedule of reinforcement. Something we had a lively conversation on before we started recording, Ian. Is it every for every single response? Is it for every five responses? Is it for, on average, every three minutes, right? Consult with your behavior plan to see how frequently you deliver reinforcement. Again, with the key goal, ultimately, of starting to fade that reinforcement slowly over time so that it's more it's more consistent with what the schedule of reinforcement they're going to encounter on everyday life so that behavior maintains over time. Number two, uh, praise is delivered with enthusiasm, variance from the SD, and varying phrases. So I can remember working in a center and 
getting a worksheet, a hundred different ways to say good job. <laughs> is, is that still in rotation, Ian? Do you know? Never even heard of that. So yeah, I love that though. It's the importance of varying phrases and have fun following correct responding. Like that's a great time. If your learner has good sense of humor, you guys are silly together, like have fun, right? It's just, it should be something to celebrate when you respond correctly. Um, and that schedule of reinforcement. Here's another key one. Depending on the schedule of reinforcement, and, it, and it, let's say it is time to provide that reinforcement, it, it should be provided as immediately as possible following that correct response, right? I'd like to say three seconds or less as, as immediately as possible. Because again, immediacy of reinforcement, the more immediate it is following a response, the more effective it is, right? Shortly thereafter, after you've provided that reinforcement, is when it's recommended to collect data for that trial. So I always say, and I'm working with new staff, reinforce, then record, and then in that order, right? We want to be sure that for data accuracy, we're recording it as quickly as possible following the response. But that reinforcement piece, in, in my opinion, should come first in, in those situations and closely tied together. And then again, like reinforcement, if we're talking about differential reinforcement here, it really should not be delivered, or at least not the highest preferred item should not be delivered for an incorrect response based on the error correction procedure that we'll describe next. Before I jump into incorrect responding and error correction, any other thoughts for that, for correct responding, Ian? There's a there's a couple or there's, there's a handful of, of responses that are going to be, you're doing one of these, I think, four things if a correct response occurs. One provide tangible reinforcement, right? That, that's no brainer. Two, provide verbal praise. And well, I guess there's three. So one, tangible, two, attention. The third one is move on to the next task. Mm -hmm. You're probably sitting here wondering, now wait a minute. Well, how, we need to reinforce that previous response, don't we? With a lot of early learners, yes. There has to be some sort of acknowledgement that the previous trial was done correctly. So in the BT meetings in the previous or coming weeks, whenever this podcast comes out, there's going to be some talk within discrete trial training about schedules of reinforcement and the, the different kinds of simple schedules of reinforcement. And within each of those schedules, there are multiple task demands being presented. And when there are, yes, at first your learner might still need a specific consequence to follow each trial within that schedule. But eventually, after enough teaching, the child will learn that moving on to the next trial in itself is a reinforcer. And we condition that reinforcer by providing praise and then moving to the next trial. By pairing the two together, the child learns that moving on to the next trial becomes a reinforcer. Also, a child will learn through DTT that the quicker they get through trials, the quicker they get to reinforcement. So they know by moving on to the next trial, they're getting closer to the end of the schedule. Reinforcement's coming sooner now. So yes, in the beginning, we do want to make sure that there is a specific reinforcer paired with the correct response. But eventually, a learner will get to the point where they don't have to be told, yes, that's correct. No, it's not. Yes, that's correct. No, it's not. Because moving on to the next trial will be their response. Now, the one thing we don't want, regardless of this, is we don't want some sort of pause. We don't want nothing. We don't want nothing in the air. There has to be something that happens in the environment for the child to learn if their response was correct or not. Um, and, and just the absence of everything is not the answer and it's typically never going to be the answer, you know, in, in teaching regardless. 
Yeah, that's a really, I think, a key point. And again, I think a theme of this podcast is how can we position our learners to succeed in life and, and promote independent living and generalize skills. And I think the point of that, of over time, maybe fading some of that like verbal stimuli following a correct response. And especially if you're on, like say a variable schedule of reinforcement where, you know, on average of every five trials are providing reinforcement, moving on to the next trial becomes a reinforcer, right? In the, in the absence of an error correction for an incorrect response, simply moving on to the next trial would be the reinforcer, yep. which I think is really powerful too, because we're always trying to look um, about how can we maximize learning? How can we fit the most amount of skills into a period of time while making it still highly engaging for the learner? And I think this is an important consideration and one to kind of have on your radar as you're moving forward of how can we continue to teach skills over time that build off of one another. Um, so really great thought, Ian. Yeah, everyone loves tangible reinforcement. Everyone loves attention. It doesn't matter how old you are. So even at this point as an adult in the work in the workplace, right? Your yeah. boss isn't going to come to you after everything you do and provide some sort of acknowledgement that it's complete or that it's done, right? In those cases, the absence of feedback from our supervisor slash just being told we can move on to the next thing tells us whether or not what we've done is acceptable. And, and that's Great the point. same thing that if our learner can get to that point, that's strong. Just like you said, strong is a good word. Being able to use that as a reinforcer is a big deal for a learner. Yeah. Well said, Ian. Well said. All right. So let's pivot a bit and let's talk about for incorrect responding, right? And, and know that this is something that we're going to certainly expand on in, in future episodes because this transitions into the point of error corrections and error correction procedures. And there are um, different types and different considerations for each. So let's just kind of move there on a high level and then we'll conclude with um, considerations for between trials, between programs. So uh, for an incorrect response, Number one, we're prompting following that incorrect response or the no response. So this is an important one. This is one that I see a lot, right? So following a no response, meaning like no response after I would say three at most five seconds. If you provide an instruction and the learner does not respond, what don't I want to see, Ian? <laughs> Repeating that instruction again, right? Bypassing that error correction, repeating that instruction again, because what we may unintentionally be doing is is teaching that learner, I don't have to respond on the, the first attempt, right? We might be somewhat strengthening some non-compliant behavior. So I think it's important talking about earlier about having kind of like an internal stopwatch, if you will. I'm providing an instruction in my head. I'm going one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi, five Mississippi. If at five Mississippi, there's no response, I'm jumping right into the error correction, right? Uh, again, I want to have you know fast, fluent, responding, good instructional control, and, and that's in a consideration there. Following that, I'm going to be following the prompt type as designated by my BCBA. You might be doing most to least prompting or least to most prompting. And, and by that, what we mean by that is what level of prompting support is necessary to guide someone towards a, a independent response. So least to most prompting would be something that starts with like a verbal prompt or a gestural prompt, and then selectively 
transitions more towards a partial physical prompt or full physical prompt, depending on how many repetitions was necessary. Um, or it could be vice versa. It could be most to least prompting where you're starting with the most intensive prompt first and then slowly fading it to least intensive. I think when it comes to prompting, a good school of thought that stuck with me is what is the least amount of prompting necessary that will be maximally effective, right? And that answer will depend based on the learner. Any thoughts or observations when it comes to prompt types and prompt hierarchy, Ian? So a couple of things I would point out that there's a big difference between a child not responding versus responding incorrectly. Yep. When a child responds incorrectly, I am going to represent that SD because I don't want them to pair an incorrect response with the correct response. Um, and with, with a lot of kids, this may not ever be an issue, but I have seen instances where a child does begin to inadvertently pair an incorrect response with a correct response because the SD was not inserted because we want to make sure that that correct response immediately and only immediately follows the correct S, the, the SD it's being paired with. If there's no response, then we are free to immediately insert the correct response because there's been nothing in between uh, that might get inadvertently paired. Now, that's something that you and your supervising clinician would need to determine together because again, what we would hate to happen is if there is some other random stimuli going on in the environment when you're presenting this one random task, you know, those are things you have to watch for. Um, and again, when we're talking about specific to clients, like you said, this is one of those where we might have to make that decision based on whether or not. Um, I've had instances where I would still tell a technician to represent the SD even if there was no response because I wanted to make sure that that response very quickly followed the SD and that's what we were shaping. Um, but there will obviously then be times where we wouldn't want to do that. And that really just, again, comes up to the supervising clinician. So the next step for incorrect response, to collect data for that trial, right? And specifying what prompt type was ultimately required. So again, trial by trial data, it's best recorded and most accurately recorded in, in the moment as closely as possible after that response. And, and for any sort of incorrect responding, we're going to be selecting what prompt type was ultimately needed in that situation. All right. And then finally, reinforcement was not delivered for incorrect responding or no response. I might put an asterisk by that as well, because this will also depend on your behavior treatment plan and your error correction procedure. I've known of instances where following incorrect responding, it could be that you're delivering a, a lower preferred item, especially mindful of how much effort was result, involved by the learner. But certainly you're going to be providing a greater magnitude and you know frequency of that reinforcer for correct responding compared to incorrect responding. Yep. And remember, reinforcement can be differentially, you know, varied, if you will, in a multitude of ways, amount, size, type, magnitude. So size, right? Maybe this time they're working for goldfish and instead of giving them the whole bag of goldfish, you're just giving them a couple so they see the difference. Maybe it's the specific reinforcer you're giving. Maybe the iPad is the favorite thing. And I know you want the iPad, but we've, we've got to see you improve on this before we give you the biggest, best thing you've got. Um, and praise itself can be varied 
again, rather than giving the over the top, you know, great, great job, uh, just kind of like a subtle, like, yep, that, that's right. And then move on. So yeah, we can make sure we can differentially reinforce in a lot of different ways. Yep. Well said. Hi, BT Focus listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Now we want to hear from you. Drop us a line at our Google Voice account at 248-215-2464 if you have any thoughts, ideas, or questions. You may even hear them on the air. Or drop us a message at btfocus at centriahealthcare.com. Until next time.